Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the international edition of the Art of Drug Choice, VetAMD, and the latest data. We're lucky to have our esteemed colleagues from around the world here today for a very robust discussion. We have Dr. Peter Kurtz from University of Toronto, Canada. Hi, Arshad. Thanks for having me. We have Dr. Sinu Hariprasad from University of Chicago. Thank you, Arshad. It's an honor to be part of this wonderful program. And Dr. Justice Garwick from University of Bern in Switzerland. Happy to join the discussion. This is episode two of four. Last time in episode one, we discussed treatment options, switching therapies, and dosing strategies. Today, we'll discuss phase three data and post-approval data and also review a case with Dr. Kurtz. In future episodes, we'll discuss pipeline candidates and we'll wrap up the series with a discussion of safety. For now, let's get to the latest data that you need to know. So I'm gonna talk um, a little bit about three studies that are uh, relevant to a discussion of real world and post hoc understandings of intraocular inflammation rates related to brolicizumab. Um, the post hoc data from Hawk and Harrier, Komodo Health Study and the IRIS Registry Study. So in a post hoc assessment of the phase three Hawk and Harrier studies, um, it was found that the presence of anti-drug antibodies may predict higher rates of intraocular inflammation in Hawk and Harrier. And there's more data um, that continues to be collected. And I'm sure as time goes on, we'll have more and more information. There are also a couple of important post-marketing database studies on brolicizumab from the Komodo Health Group and the Iris Registry Group. The upshot of the Komodo Health study was that a history of intraocular inflammation and retinal vascular occlusion were linked with increased risk of inflammation during brolicizumab therapy, as was uh, female sex. The post-marketing uh, database study on brolicizumab from the IRIS database, the message from that study was that a history of intraocular inflammation or retinal vascular occlusion was also linked with increased risk of inflammation during brolicizumab therapy. Um, in the IRIS registry, there were 12,000 patients enrolled and it's a database of real-world patients that's maintained by the American Academy of Ophthalmology. The main findings were that the highest observed risk of developing intraocular inflammation or retinal vasculitis or retinal vascular occlusion in the six months after the first injection of brolicizumab was a history of intraocular inflammation or retinal vascular occlusion in the preceding 12 months. Um, of note, there was a 0.46 risk of in intraocular inflammation for all eyes treated with brolicizumab, but that risk was nearly 4% or 3.97% for those individuals that had a history of prior intraocular inflammation or retinal vasculitis or retinal vascular occlusion. Peter, that's an excellent summary for a lot of data you just did. So appreciate that. Uh, so quick question uh, for, for Sinu, based on what uh, Peter um, uh, just discuss. I mean, does this data impact how you are going to pick patients for uh, treatment with brolicizumab, prior IOI, female gender? Does that really matter? Uh, of course it does. I mean, we, we need to um, consider all these things um, when um, choosing the right patient to uh, switch or begin a brolicizumab therapy. So uh, all of the above. The, the female gender, um, I'm not so convinced, but it's something I certainly think about. And I just wonder if it's uh, because females have a higher rate of systemic inflammation, um, you know, who, who knows. But, but uh, of course, I take all this into consideration before um, uh, advising um, or discussing with my patient whether they should be uh, switched or started on brolicizumab therapy. 
I agree with you. So, you know, I don't exclude uh, female gender for sure, but if they have history of obviously IOI and retinal uh, vascular disease, then, then that's a big question. Uh, just as you have been using brolicizumab uh, for past year or two already, um, how are you screening your patients uh, for history of IOI uh, and retinal vascular occlusion? What I think is definitely a, a, an issue is intraocular inflammation at any point. Vascular occlusion, um, having passed years ago, may not be that much of a risk factor, I do think. But I would be very careful. The most important thing is not uh, to take close history because you will hardly be able to differentiate intraocular inflammation from conjunctivitis if you ask patients. The most important for me is the patient education. You can't see the patient as frequently uh, as to exclude any intercurrent uh, uh, development of intraocular inflammation. And therefore, patient education is absolutely key to diagnose early and treat patients and thereby giving them any chance for a reasonable outcome. And definitely, I would not avoid treating women because I think uh, women have a greater potential of developing autoimmunity, uh, have a larger, uh, stronger potential of uh, running into more severe inflammation and uh, are more prevalent in the group of AMD patients. And that may distort the results. So I'm not sure about that sig signal strength at all. Yeah, I think the signal strength was, as you said, was not as high as... Uh patients with history of uh, intraocular inflammation, retinal vascular occlusion. I think uh, the bottom line is we're still learning a lot. I mean, the drug has been out in the US for past two years or so, uh, but we're still learning a lot. And, and I think this neutralizing uh, antibody uh, data that, was, that Peter presented so nicely, we're still learning who are the patients that get uh, uh, neutralizing antibodies and can we have a test to identify those patients before we start treatment. I think the bottom line is that as physicians, we all wanna have uh, you know, a drug that has a good efficacy and safety profile. And if we can decrease the rates of inflammation, if we can decrease the rates of uh, uh, irre irreversible vision loss with brosizumab, then of course it becomes a much meaningful option. But even without that test, I think, as you said, just as the history and looking into the data that Peter presented in terms of uh, patients, uh, you know, having vascular occlusion or intraocular inflammation, I think it's meaningful to guide clinicians to, to make better decisions. And of course, we're going to talk about monitoring and safety in the last episode. I think that is also super, super crucial. So um, great discussions, everyone. Uh, I think we're going to move on now. Um, uh, Justice uh, will now uh, present uh, uh, 72 week uh, data for the Archway trial. Our goal here in this episode is to update our audience about the latest uh, data from all the clinical trials that can impact practice. Thank you, Arshad. In the next couple of minutes, I'm going to present what we know from Archway. Archway is uh, following the ladder trial, which many of you may have heard of, uh, uh, which uh, used an uh, uh, port delivery system with ranibizumab and showed uh, that it, the effect of that system lasts for at least six months. The ARCWAY trial is going to uh, close uh, uh, results in the next weeks, so it's, we have no published data on, on that, but we have the interim 72-week data. What we learned is that the uh, 
uh, port delivery system has to be refilled every six months. Um, if it is done so, then the outcome is equivalent to monthly injections of ranibizumab, which results in a five times lower injection rate in the PDS group. In this uh, phase three trial, there were 418 patients enrolled and uh, half of them received the standard dose of ranibizumab and half of them the uh, PDS refilled every six months. After 36 to 40 weeks, the visual acuity was identical between the groups. And uh, this indicates that there is clearly a longer duration of treatment and the use of a drug that clinicians are familiar with gives a very uh, high safety level for that drug because we know what we have to expect and we can predict the uh, response to that treatment. So for our patient in clinical practice, that means a longer duration of treatment and a drug uh, uh, which, which uh, with clinicians are very familiar, but it requires a surgical implantation, which is typically a stress for the patients who have to go to the OR. The need for surgery will probably not change for patients that have a very high treatment demand. The question is uh, whether it is uh, also interesting for patients with this normal uh, treatment demand and a good response to treatment. I do not think uh, that surgery per se is an issue, but we have to discuss the safety, uh, which will be done later. The refilling is critical. You have also to undertake a learning curve for refilling the system and it has to be done every six months, but it could be done in an office setting, which is interesting for the patient. In, at the end of the day, I do think that patients will have a significant decline in the number of visits because the six months uh, effect of that drug is very reliable with more than 70%. I think that's a great summary, uh, Justice. I think uh, the question here is, you know, we have excellent data on port delivery system, as you mentioned, the latter trial, the median time to refill was 15.8 months at the end of the uh, study. And you had 80% of patients uh, uh, going six months or longer. And in our way, as you said beautifully, that patients were refilled every six months so that everybody is getting treatment. And, and we continue to learn about port delivery system over time because uh, you know it's a surgical implant and stays in patient's eyes essentially forever. So we have to talk about safety, which we'll do at the in the later episode. But question for you, Sinu, um, uh, based on what Justice has shown that we have comparable outcomes in terms of visual acuity and anatomy with uh, poor delivery system, obviously uh, it's placed in the OR. So what kind of patients, Sinu, do you think if poor delivery system is approved, uh, you're gonna be considering uh, in your clinic, are those patients who are getting monthly injections? Are those patients who are getting every two to three months injections? Because there's a potential that patients may go longer than six months. Uh, in clinical practice, we do whatever is best for patients. We don't follow six months, uh, you know, refill because, uh, you know, trials are done for a different reason for approval. So how do you um, decide which patients and in, in your practice to be considered for poor delivery system? Um, you know, th th this is a tough therapy. Um, I uh, don't see myself using this uh, frequently. Uh, I don't think it's first line. I don't think it's second line. It may not even be a third line uh, treatment. 
And part of the reason is looking at all the other therapies that are in the pipeline between gene therapies, the, the Kodiak um, uh, KSI therapy, and uh, with each advancing year, this therapy is becoming less and less relevant. Um, the, the issue, um, you know, we're going to talk about side effect profile later, but we're talking about displacement of the implant. Dr. Garwig uh, mentioned that uh, retinal detachments, vitreous hemorrhage, uh, they're not insignificant and these are not ultra rare. These are actually uh, quite frequent in the uh, high single digits. And, um, you know, given the side effect profile and the need uh, that some patients do need boosters, that means I have to bring in everyone for an examination because you don't know which uh, of the certain percentage of patients that need boosters, you don't know which ones need to be brought in. So that means you had to bring in everyone for an examination to see if they have to be boosted. So even though, uh, yes, some patients got out um, uh, to, you know, to several months uh, without needing a booster, you don't know in advance which, the, which patients um, uh, need to be boosted. So, um, I, you know, I, we, we have to wait and see. This is one of the therapies that uh, we really need to, um, you know, get in our hands and uh, in the real world. Um, you know, obviously the people who conducted this trial are very skilled surgeons and are trained and have practice uh, putting these in. But in the real world, let's see what the side effect profile is, and then we'll make a decision about its uh, practicality and um, uh, utilization in our, uh, in our specialty. I think that those are a very interesting perspectives. You know, I think uh, uh, it, it's always good to be conservative and, and careful. And that's what, that's what we have learned from our recent uh, experience with newer agents and technology. Obviously, a surgical procedure, so it is not going to be as safe as injections. I mean, even if we, we refine the technique, which we have, I mean, the lowered the rate of vitreous hemorrhage from 50% to 5% in ladder with introduction of laser to the pars plana before making the incision. So I'll tell you this, you know, I was also very uh, uh, concerned about the safety obviously and, and long-term impact uh, before I signed up for the ladder and archway trials. And we are in all trials, ladder, archway, portal, pagoda and pavilion. And I think your point about how you see the benefit until you have experience with it. So obviously the surgical learning curve is there. Initially, uh, it's not a difficult surgery. It's more about learning the little fine details about surgery and making the right incision. If you're not gonna make a 3.5 millimeter incision, you're gonna make a 3.7 or eight, you may end up with implant dislocation during refill. So I really appreciate that you're honest and conservative uh, by putting patient safety first, obviously. But what I'll tell you is what I was impressed by was patient's preference. So it's interesting, you know, how many patients come to our clinics and they have anxiety and they don't like injections. I mean, as much as we think they like seeing us, seeing us is okay, but the injection experience, they don't show it. So what I saw was in all my patients where, where I, I placed the port delivery system, they were very, very happy. And because they, they, were, they didn't mind coming in monthly for uh, visits in you know, ladder and archway, and then every two months, which is in portal, which is a long-term study, but they just were happy. And some of them, or actually almost all of them who had bilateral disease said, when can I get this in my other eye so don't, I don't have to go through uh, injections. And, and based on the patient preference uh, from archway, it was almost 93% or so preference for poor delivery system versus, um, versus injection. So I totally agree with you. I think as clinicians, we need to make sure we see the long-term efficacy and safety data. 
And, you know, safety always comes first. Um, so I think we have to balance, as you said, the, how this is going to pan out in the real world and, and, and the efficacy and safety. And I think risk benefit profile, as you said, is super crucial for any treatment, um, any treatment we have. Um, uh, Peter, any comments uh, to follow up me and Sinu about the port delivery system? And do you feel like there are patients you would consider this for and, and your thoughts on the excellent summary that uh, Justice did? I mean, I certainly think that this port delivery system is an interesting device, um, and I think it'll uh, it it's it's probably one of these things that we'll come back to uh, in um, in the fullness of time for other agents. I mean, certainly Lucentis is an agent that is tried and true, and we know is very safe. But you know, we're supplanting the safety of the drug with um, the risk of the implantation and the risk, uh, you know, surgical. Uh, the surgical trauma and the risks um, of the surgery, which, as Sinu pointed out, are not uh, insignificant. I mean, you know, the patients for whom this is probably most beneficial are those that have a high need for treatment. So although the mean uh, to refill was much higher than six months uh, in, the, um, in, the, in, our, in the trials, um, I think the patients, you know, who we would favor for a procedure like this will probably need to be uh, refilled, you know, more frequently, maybe every six months. And with the with brolicizumab and e even a flibercept and many of the platforms and treatments on the horizon, you know, six months is not that impressive for something that um, has significant risk and involves a surgical procedure. I mean, if this caught on in a big way, um, uh, you know, macular degeneration is a, is a common problem. It wouldn't leave any time for me in the OR to do things like macular holes. So um, amongst all the things that we're going to discuss, I think um, this is perhaps uh, the least promising. Dr. Curtis made uh, several very important points that I'd like to elaborate on and that um, I, I found interesting. The, the first is that when we talk about the patients who will actually get this treatment, you know, the, the, the conundrum is that you, you, a patient would have to have responded well to anti-VEGF therapy to consider putting in this port delivery system. Why would we put this in a patient who is doing well on anti-VEGF therapy? That, that, that it doesn't make sense. So the patients who will actually get this treatment in the real world are, I guess you could call it the bottom of the barrel patients or the more difficult patients. And I think many more patients than we're seeing in the trial will need a booster within that six month period. The second is the um, uh, uh, competition for OR time. I, I know in my institution, uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we have to work hard to get OR time to do our elective cases and God forbid emergent um, um, uh, uh, surgical cases. And th this adds to the volume of the surgical cases, which, um, you know, can be problematic in uh, certain institutions. But uh, very good comments um, the, from the group. And um, really, um, it's a, a controversial therapy uh, at best. But uh, I think once we get in the real world, I think that's when we'll really start to make decisions about uh, who, who this therapy is appropriate for. Maybe adding to all your comments, uh, one could consider a larger uh, PDS. The thing is drug stability, uh, which is probably limiting the duration and, and the current uh, recommendation of, of exchanging uh, the anti-VGF every six months is linked as far as I have learned to uh, also in part to drug stability. So maybe you use up and you will still not be able to, to uh, have longer intervals than every six months if drug stability is not uh, granted. I think those are all excellent points. And I think um, 
Uh, I think we should not take the surgical training lightly. So as Sinu said, I think uh, surgeons who are in the trial, you know, we went through a lot of training and observation and that may not be possible. So I think this is gonna have a very slow, um, uh, you know, uptake because we wanna make sure that uh, we don't see complications that we have not seen in the trials. And obviously all of you know there are things that can change from trials to real world. So I think it's gonna have a slow um, uptake, but you know, based on my experience, I'll tell you this is that patients are happy, but of course the safety um, is different and it's never gonna be the same. So I think picking the right patient, if you offer this treatment, treatment is the key. And, and the other question Sinu brought in was the fact that, um, how does this play out with, let's say, frisimab, uh, KSI-301, and then gene therapies, uh, which, which are one and done in a lot of cases. So I think it's exciting times for us to have uh, options. And other thing uh, Peter and Sinu brought up is OR capacity. I mean, I am doing 10 cases every week. I don't have OR capacity, but I also don't have clinic capacity <laughs> because you're all seeing a lot of patients. So how do we balance that and then the practice dynamics from from a private practice perspective is also crucial like you know we have built these large practices that cater to a lot of patients with injections and you transition those patients out uh, from the injection clinic well how does it impact uh, your staff your finances and things like that so I think there's a lot of discussions about that so thank you again for robust discussions about the port delivery system next we're going to move on to uh, the Tenaya and Lucerne trials uh, um, for Frisimab. Uh, these are the phase three trials and, and Dr. Hari Prasad will give a brief overview of Tenaya and Lucerne. Thank you, Arshad. Uh, I'm sure many of the audience have heard of uh, Tenaya and uh, Lucerne. Uh, these are the uh, FDA registration trials uh, for Frisimab. As you know, um, ANG2 is upregulated in pathologic conditions. And it displaces ANG1 on TIE2, leading to vascular destabilization, neovascularization, and sensitization to VEGFA. Perismab is a biospecific antibody designed to bind both VEGFA and ANG2. The trial design is um, uh, as follows. Uh, these are prospective, randomized, double-masked uh, multicenter studies. And to be included in this trial, uh, patients have to be greater than 50 years old, uh, vision between 20 over 32 to 20 over 320 at baseline. And uh, obviously the um, coital neovascularization had to be secondary to wet AMD and uh, tr only treatment naive patients were included in the study. And subfoveal coital neovascular uh, membrane had to be confirmed on fluorescein angiography or OCT. Patients in the trial were randomly assigned uh, one to one to map six milligrams every 16 weeks after four monthly loading doses, or a flibrocet two milligrams every eight weeks after three monthly loading doses. Uh, each arm had approximately 330 patients, over 90% of whom finished the study at uh, year one. The primary endpoint was change in vision from baseline, and vision was calculated at the uh, mean uh, as the mean vision at weeks 40, 44, and 48. So uh, the results were as follows. Ferismab uh, up to uh, every 16 weeks was non-inferior to Flibrocet every eight weeks at week 48. Patients gained on average about five or six letters in both treatment arms. Ferismab was truly durable by week 48, 45% of patients in the Ferismab arm were on Q16 week dosing and about 80% of patients in the Ferismab arms were on every 12 week or longer dosing. 
the median number of injections in the frisimab arm was six. In the flibercet arms, it was uh, about eight injections was the median. Similar proportions of patients gained at least 15 letters in both treatment arms. Sinu, a great, great summary here uh, for Tanaya and Lucerne data. I think really exciting to have additional mechanism of action on top of VEGF-A inhibition um, to, to see if we can have better durability. And it appears that uh, uh, clearly Tanaya and Lucerne showed us the, the durability with frisimab. Um, and of course, safety is important. We are going to discuss safety in our last episode, but it appears that safety is comparable. So Sinu, quick question to you, um, as you nicely presented this data, uh, if Resimab is approved, where does it fit in in your treatment algorithm? Is it a first-line agent? Is it uh, a second-line agent uh, for your patients? How do you plan to use it based on the data you just presented? Oh, I'm certainly excited about uh, Frismab and uh, I'm very optimistic. Uh, the durability is exquisite. Uh, uh, safety is very good. Um, I, I think there would be uh, many patients where I would consider this as a first-line therapy. I agree with you. I think for a first-line therapy, we need to have equal or better efficacy, equal or better durability and comparable safety. And I think here we see that you have better durability uh, than a flipper step. Uh, Peter, any thoughts on, on the data from Tanaya and Lucerne? The data doesn't uh, blow me away, but I think you know the structure of the trial was such that um, it may understate the true durability of ferisumab. You know, in, in real life, uh, we don't, or it's, it's unusual for us to treat patients at regular intervals, except at the beginning. So um, the capacity of ferisumab to extend, you know, hasn't really been tested. And I think once it gets approved and once it, uh, once we have it in our hands, we can um, get a sense of how durable this therapy really is. You know, I was hoping to see, um, I know it was a non-inferiority design, but I was hoping to see um, some separation in the visual outcomes uh, between the ferisumab group and the flibercept group. We didn't see efficacy improvement or better efficacy with frisimab in the phase two trials in neovascular AMD. So we knew that we're not gonna see better efficacy in terms of BCBA gains. So that's why the, the Tanaya Lucerne trial was essentially designed as non-inferiority study, trying to see if we can decrease the treatment burden for patients. And it appears that of course the durability is, uh, is longer. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, in diabetic macular edema, the, the ANG2 levels are even higher and in the Yosemite Ryan study, those were also non-inferiority studies, but we saw a significant uh, drying effect of ferisumab compared to a flibercept. So anatomically, it was uh, it was meaningful in terms of drying the retina and, and getting less fluid. Even in, in Tanai and Lucerne, we don't have time to discuss the whole data set, uh, but, but there was a trend towards better drying uh, with ferisumab. So the hope is that, you know, we're going to use this agent, as Sinu said, likely first line uh, to help our patients and, and the real world data on efficacy and safety and durability will drive um, the usage. Justice, any points uh, from you about Tanaya and Lucerne? Maybe the number of injections is not so much different because of the study design holding injections in monthly intervals, uh, which is hardly to explain uh, respecting the uh, duration of effect of, of, of parisima. 
the thing with extending the intervals is uh, disease activity at the end of year one. It's probably too early to predict the uh, the capability of of, of Horizima for an uh, extension protocol, but. It's likely that all of these longer acting anti-VGF drugs, they will less strictly following a treatment extend protocol, maybe by extending treatment intervals by four week increments or by going PRN because uh, the treatment effect is very much individualized as we have learned in the early days from brolocizumab treatment naive patients. So there are different aspects. Disease activity at the end of year one is probably uh, gearing uh, the future of treatment strategy in a given patient. Those are those are excellent points, Justice. I think anything we can do to push the interval and decrease the visits, and, and you're right, maybe it means we extend patients not by two weeks, um, but by four weeks. So, so Peter will have to uh, run another study like Cantry to tell us and guide us <laughs> with Perisimab. So we're, we're going to wait for that. But Sinu, I think the point that uh, I want to discuss or ask you is that given that many of these therapies will extend treatment, uh, you know, regimen, whether it's poor delivery system, whether it's frisimab, whether it's KSI and other things, what does this mean for practice uh, flow and, and volume? And, and, and does this give you more, gives you an opportunity to see more patients or, and, and what does it mean to the business side for a private practice, you know? I can extend these patients out and see more new patients because we are so full. We can maybe treat dry MD patients once we have an approval. So, I mean, does this affect your practice in terms of practice dynamics, volume, and flow? That's a great question, uh, Ashad. Um, in, in academics, we're somewhat removed uh, from the um, business aspect. Uh, we're uh, poor salaried employees, unfortunately. And, um, you know, so, so it's a little different than private practice. Of course, uh, you know, I'm, um, you know, mocking in some way, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not as directly um, attached to, I see one patient, I make X dollars. Now, um, but the issue is that th this is a good thing. It improves access for our patients. It um, allows us to have, maintain some in, uh, sanity that we're not just becoming injection clinics and, um, and it allows us to get in those new patients that uh, truly need our surgical retina care. So um, I, I think it's a good thing. I think durability is good from the patient perspective. It's good from the caregiver perspective. It's good from our perspective. And from a societal standpoint, it's not just the cost of the drug, it's the cost of the exam, the OCT, the injection procedure. And um, you know, with every time you stick a needle in the eye, there's a, a finite risk that we're taking. So all in all, um, you know, there may be um, some hit uh, to the finances, um, but uh, it'll be more than made up uh, by bringing in new patients that truly need uh, access uh, to our uh, broad-based services besides uh, doing injections. I think those are great, great points. You know, I think as physicians, all of us want decreased treatment burden, better visual acuity outcomes for our patients long-term, and, and really, uh, you know, continue to push, push the space. So I agree with you. I don't think anybody will be, a, you know, mad at having these new agents because I'm excited for patients. I'm excited for my practice to really uh, extend the patients out. And, you know, I'm looking for better outcomes. As we all know, the real world outcomes are terrible after especially first two years um, where patients lose vision. So again, thank you all for great discussions. Uh, for the audience, we are now gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with a case with Dr. Peter Kurtz.
Welcome back, everyone. Now we're excited to have Dr. Peter Kurz, who's going to be presenting a case uh, for us, and then we're going to have a discussion after his presentation. Thanks, Arshad. Um, this is a case of a 60-year-old Asian female who came in complaining of with a three-week history of vision loss and distortion in her right eye, and her presenting visual acuity was 20-50. When we look at this um, on FOSS uh, projection, we could see uh, that there are some uh, some polyps and the hint of a, a branching vascular network. When we look at her structural OCT, she has sort of the typical appearance of, uh, of polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy. She has multiple pigment epithelial de detachments that are sort of thumb-shaped and, um, and peaked with some associated subretinal fluid. And when we look at the OCT angiogram, I think it demonstrates quite nicely the branching vascular network and also uh, the polyps uh, uh, in the deep uh, projections in the RP and choriocapillaris projections. So this is a lady um, who we actually started on brolicizumab. So she has poly, what, what seems like obvious polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy. After a single injection, um, she, her subretinal fluid disappears completely and the height of the pigment epithelial detachments is significant reduced and her vision improved. So we stretched her out relatively gingerly and she came back five weeks later. Her vision had improved from uh, 2050 at baseline to 2032. And again, we have persistently, uh, persistently dry retina um, and a reduced height and volume of her retinal pigment epithelial detachments. So we continued uh, to extend her and um, seven weeks later, she still has stable disease. The pigment epithelial detachments haven't disappeared. Um, but they're certainly smaller than they were at the outset. And at three months or at 12 weeks, her visual acuity has improved to 2030, but we can see that there's a hint um, of subretinal fluid that has returned. We know that polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy is associated with high uh, disease activity. It's, um, it's thought to be a variant of type one choroidal neovascularization. Um, historically, it's been managed with either anti-VEGF monotherapy or in combination uh, with PDT. The PLANET study um, showed, uh, uh, showed resolution of the polyps in about 40% of patients uh, at one year and um, about 30% at two years. So, uh, and the addition of photodynamic therapy didn't really seem to have much beneficial effect. And it showed that at one year and at two year, about 20% of patients still had persistent disease activity, even those that had even a small number of patients that required rescue photodynamic therapy. And if we look at the Hawk and Harrier uh, studies, we see that um, the six milligram dose of brolicizumab really had quite a beneficial effect on those patients with uh, PCV. Um, there was much, many fewer patients at, at one year at week 48, less than 10% of patients had persistent intraretinal fluid and subretinal fluid. And that was really the rationale starting this patient on brolicizumab. Thanks, Peter. That was an excellent uh, case. Um, I have a quick question for Justice on management of PCV. Justice, how are you managing your patients uh, with PCV currently? And, and does brolicizumab uh, fit in as a, as a treatment option for those patients? Basically, we have managed our PCV cases as far as diagnosed, we may have had quite some underdiagnosed cases, uh, as everybody has. Uh, we managed them with the treatment extent protocol, and the diagnosed cases definitely had a high treatment demand. 
So I do think, I do expect that uh, Brodus has its place because it goes uh, better into the depths and diff uh, diffuses better into the corridor and also in the vascular uh, complexes. Um, but I have no personal experience with treatment naive patients and of The switcher cases do respond as you would expect if they have a very high treatment demand. So Aflibus have, they, they do respond uh, in terms of a longer interval or better anatomic outcome uh, in, com in terms of completely drying but with the limited experience we have uh, uh, by now. Sinu, uh, PEDs um, uh, always uh, come into play. And, 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 you know, of course, they are part of the disease, but we don't drive treatment just to treat the PED, but uh, fluid, uh, as we learned back in the day from the PRONTO trial. Um, how are you managing your patients uh, uh, with PED uh, and disease activity, uh, a case similar to what... Uh, Peter showed, and, and with PCV, do you think aflibercept uh, um, works better? Do you think brolicizumab works better? Do you have any experience? Because just like Justice said, I think these patients are either underdiagnosed, you know, in Japan, we have a much higher rate of PCV versus in the US. So how are you managing those patients? Uh, I'm, I'm certain I'm underdiagnosing uh, PCV in my clinic. Uh, you know, the, the rates in the U.S. are in the low single digits. So, um, you know, when I'm sure we see them, we treat them exactly like any other wet AMD patient, and uh, they seem to be doing well. Uh, I don't recall specifically if I um, have a brolicizumab patient um, uh, with PCV. I, I don't think I do. But um, I would expect the response to be very good. And um, uh, you'll see that the case I'll be presenting later on uh, is a patient with a complex um, uh, subretinal fluid and PED that we switched to brolicizumab. And it's not a naive patient, but the patient did uh, quite well. So um, in general, um, and you know, to summarize, I, I, I treat PCV just like I do a wet AMD with a treat and extend protocol with any of the other therapies. Thanks, Sinu. Um, uh, from the panel here, any of you, do you use PDT in combination uh, um, for your patients with PCV? We have done so in times of uh, ranibizumab treatment uh, with, uh, with aflibercept coming to the market and with uh, increasing experience with aflibercept, we did not uh, use PDT anymore in those cases. Well, there may have been uh, the one rare case which is not controlled but I don't recall it at least. Got it, Peter? I mean, certainly uh, with ranibizumab and you know, the publication of the Everest and Everest II trials, um, you know, there seemed to be some advantage to the addition of PDT, but um, I, I honestly, I can't, I can't remember the last time I did photodynamic therapy for, for PCV, certainly more than a year. For the audience, uh, this is a wrap up of this episode. Uh, as you know, more episodes are forthcoming. And um, the first installment uh, of this episode is also available uh, in the podcast feed. Uh, also, please check out images uh, from the case that Dr. Kurtz presented on itube.net. Thank you for your attention. Mm -hmm.